If you would, be turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We'll be in verses 21 through 26 this morning. And as you're turning there, let me give you the key truth that I want us to walk away with this morning. It's that God displays his righteousness in our justification by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let me read that again. God displays his righteousness in our justification by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word this morning, this is Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, many theologians argue that this is the single greatest paragraph in all of the Bible. Luther's made that argument, as has many others, and that's, a, that's a kind of a tough argument to make, but it is a wonderful paragraph that we should uh, keep near and that we should keep in mind because of all that it says to us, because of all that it unpacks. As you have already recognized, probably the great Reformed uh, syllogism that you hear often, uh, uh, in God's grace alone, by faith alone, uh, I've messed it up already, uh, by, by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, comes from this paragraph. And, and, and the intent is to show us how deeply God loves us, that in our salvation, it is the glorious display of his righteousness made manifest in us so that we could be part of the kingdom, that we could actually accomplish the work that we've been invited to for, for our eternal good and for the eternal good of all of those around us. And so it's important that we uh, understand some of these words. Some of them are big. Some of them can be, uh, in a sense, almost uh, off-putting when you hear them because they're multiple syllables or you think they're dusty and dry. And the argument that I want to make to you this morning, if, if I could get you to walk away with one thing, it's this. Theology is intended to be lived. It is not an abstraction. Let me say that again. Theology is intended to be lived. It is not an abstraction. Too often, and you know this, when you get into the abstraction is actually where you find some of the heresies. When you get into the abstraction is where you find that relationship is nowhere to be found. Too often, we like to talk about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen instead of what does it actually mean to look like Jesus? And so it is important that we take back these terms and rightly apply them biblically. And so we'll try to do that this morning, but by way of preparation for us, I wanna ask you a question. Are we being saved to or from God? We ask this question often, why? Why do you think we bring this up so much? Well, because we get it twisted. Because they're all, if, if Satan can get you in any way, shape, or form to doubt God's love for you, then he is able to diminish God's glory in you, 
right? By virtue of your senses, how you sense it or experience it. And so it is very important that we continue to wrestle with this idea. In fact, we see it in ourselves. Often when, when we sin, and I, I'm guilty of this myself, we don't run to God. We run from him. We think, all right, I've got to go uh, make some sort of atonement. I've got to make this right. I've got to read my Bible so many days in a row. I've got to pray for so long a time before I can, I can come before God, before I can feel good about being in God's presence. Well, what's the truth of the gospel? Well, the truth of the gospel is you are always in God's presence. As the psalmist says, even if you could find your way into the grave, he is there. Even if you could find yourself into the deepest of darkness, it is as the noonday to him. Now, why is that the case? Well, that's because he loves us. Because he doesn't want us to ever experience that kind of aloneness. But sometimes we find ourselves feeling alone, don't we? Well, this is a truth we've got to return to. And so, which way do you run when you, are, you, you sin or are sinned against? It is the same application. If you're like me, sometimes when you're sinned against, you don't want to run to God. You want to, you want to take up arms. You want to fight. You want to retaliate. You, you want blood. But it's the wrong kind of blood. And so, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it frees us from both despair on one end where, where shame and guilt can kind of haunt us at the edges and it frees us from arrogance on the other end by taking matters into our own hands. This is important for us to remember because we are in danger of both arrogance and despair. And so as we step into this text, we need to remember from whence we have come. This is actually picking up where Romans 1.17 left off. <clears throat> in fact, Romans 1.17, where it says, the righteous shall live by faith, which is the quote from Habakkuk, the entirety of Romans is unpacking that statement. Now, he took a brief detour in Romans 1.18 through 3.20 to unpack and help us to see how far in and of ourselves we are from that reality and how, how purely impossible it is for us to be pleasing to the Lord in and of ourselves. And now he's going to show us how, how can the righteous live by faith. And what's interesting about that statement is how incarnational it is. Right? Your righteousness is to be a lived reality. It is to be a displayed reality. And notice how many times in 321 through 26, he mentions God's righteousness. So this is the focus. So as we begin, it is important for us to understand what is God's righteousness. Well, as we have said throughout this series, it is the display of his character in the world. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34, uh, we'll look at verses 6 and 7. We mention this often because of just how powerful it is. This is God's self-statement of himself. This is his declaration of his character. So I would like to argue that this is a verse uh, that you should memorize. This is a verse you should use for family worship often. Parents, if I could get your attention for just a moment, there is not a better verse in the Bible that you could teach your children about who God is and who they are supposed to be and helping them to see what it looks like because none of this comes natural, right? You who are parents, um, are your children naturally merciful? 
Are they, are they quick to forgive those who would take any one of their toys or for any of their siblings to even think they own any toys themselves? Right? This stuff doesn't come natural. In fact, even Louis L'Amour in the book Daybreakers says, mercy is not innate, it must be taught. And so we have an opportunity to help our children, grandparents. Uh, Scarlett is with us this weekend. Unfortunately, she won't be here this morning. She had a low-grade fever. Uh, but but it's, it's, we have an opportunity as well to display these characteristics, husbands and wives. If there is a better list of, of, of things to display to one another, help me find it. Friends, if there's a better list of things to display to one another, fellow church members, neighbors, so, as we step into this text, uh, we, don't, we don't have time to unpack it. I've preached it before. You're welcome to go back and, and listen to that sermon or find someone else who's unpacked it. But it is worthy of our meditation and study to know what each of these words mean. But just, just hear this description God gives himself as Moses is hid in the cleft of the rock. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Let me say just briefly for those of you who find that last piece a bit disturbing, what he's actually saying is, I am not going to allow sin to keep going on and on. He's actually declaring that sin will be limited. Is that good news for us? Yes, absolutely it's good news for us because left to our own devices, we've already seen what we are. Romans 1, 18 through 320, and I'm not gonna reread that for you. You've had enough of that already. And I knew that was gonna be a long stretch for us as a church, that it was gonna lay us bare a bit, that toward the end of it, you were gonna start thinking you didn't like me very much. And that's all right. We now are to the dawn, the dawn of the declaration of but now. Often you will recognize that those are some of the sweetest words in all of the Bible. As sin has been described, it talks about God's condescending and stepping in. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Again, this is the argument that the, the character of God, the display of God, the theology of God is something that is to be seen, experienced, tasted as good, incarnated. It has been manifested, and it says here, apart from the law. Now, this is very important. Why does God love you? Does he have to? Actually, no, he doesn't. How do we know that? Well, remember the flood. Remember the times of judgment where he, in his sovereign understanding of things, puts an end to things. He is not bound by any law. There's nothing in the universe that forces him to love you. So what does that mean? It means he chooses to. This is his redemptive will. Remember, if I were to call you, uh, my Tuesday morning group's gonna kind of twitch here a little bit. If I were to call you at three in the morning and say, what is the will of God? You should be able to answer quickly uh, to redeem and be with his people, right? 
I'm going to start trying this, just so you know. It's part of the new shepherding group technique. We're going to call you at three in the morning or drop by your house and just start yelling like John Brown or something. And so uh, it's important that you be able to answer that question because too often we don't know that for some reason or we're not living it out. The will of God is God wants to redeem and be with his people. And therefore, his righteousness, which is his character displayed, is for that purpose. It is not because he has to. Now, notice what it says next here. But, or although, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So all of Scripture is a display of God's love for his people. This, from Genesis to Revelation, is a giant love letter to his people. It is the declaration of what we're going to get to here in just a moment. Jesus Christ, who is the incarnation of his righteousness, who then gives us the ability to display that righteousness, right? And so the, all of scripture, there's, there's no place in the Bible that you cannot turn to that in some way, shape, or form helps you to understand God's love. Even the hard ones. I just finished Obadiah as part of my journey through the minor prophets and God's love is declared even there. He is in fact showing how deeply he loves his people that there would be a group of people, in this case, the Edomites, who would uh, in any way, shape, or form dismiss or seek to harm his children. That draws his anger. Just because he's slow to angry doesn't mean he doesn't not get angry, Correct? And so you who are parents, you who are family members and friends, you too know this kind of anger. And it in and of itself is not always bad. But it is important for us to recognize that all of Scripture points to this. What's interesting is remember who shows up at the transfiguration. Who? The representative of the law being Moses and the prophets being Elijah. Why were they there? to testify to this is the righteousness of God displayed, transfigured, transformed, and soon to be imputed to you, God's people. And so these, all of scripture points to God's love for us, and it goes on, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So how do we have access to this righteousness, this character of God? Well, it is by faith alone, or through faith alone. Now, what is faith? And you may say, well, I mean, it's an action, right? It's what, something, it's what we do. No, it's actually not an action. It is, it is the passive reception of a gift that you didn't deserve. It is your surrender. It is you saying and admitting to that I am a sinner, fallen from head to foot and everything in between, as Paul uh, explained for us in verses 9 through 18. Uh, or yeah, close enough. Uh, and so it's important that we recognize how thoroughly fallen we are and that we don't have any capacity whatsoever to please the Lord and we don't even know which God to go to. In fact, what's interesting is the real biblical God scares us because we don't know how to be loved like this. We don't know how to trust like this. We all have trust issues. We all have struggles understanding the depth of God loves. That, that scares us way more. We would actually prefer, in some weird way, a judge who was harsh but clear. 
We would rather not have grace. We would prefer justice only in some weird way. And so it is only through your surrender in Christ Jesus as Savior alone that grants you access to the righteousness of God to be displayed in you. And he goes on. Uh, for there is no distinction. Now, this is very important. Think about the crowd he's talking to, redeemed Jews from Pentecost and redeemed Gentiles, the fruit of their ministry there in Rome, but they've gotten sideways with one another. They've, they've tried to distinguish themselves from one another. They've tried to create this hierarchy of favor and power. And so he's again reminding them, there is no distinction It doesn't matter where you started. It doesn't matter what you were born to. It doesn't matter if you had the law, the covenant, the prophets, any of these things. That's not what matters. Because remember, all of those things were to assist us in understanding the righteousness of God. So he says, for there is no distinction. And here's the no distinction. Here's what we are utterly unified in. Now, now this is important. You need to hear me because of what we've heard from Romans 1.18 through 3.20. That mean, this means, what he's about to say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means that those of you who grew up doing your best to be a model citizen or, or a model son or daughter or model whatever, you are just as fallen as a prostitute, a drug addict, someone who's transgender, someone who is a white supremacist, someone who is a a murderer, you are just as thoroughly fallen. And if you don't come to terms with that reality, if you don't recognize that where the Bible says there is no distinction, it is devastating for you to try to create one. Now, did I just say that the consequences are the same in life? No, but the consequences in life pass. They're temporary. What we're concerned about is the eternal consequence, which is the falling short of the glory of God. And so in this way, there is no distinction whatsoever. And there's another way in which there's no distinction that Paul goes on to that's very important for us. And uh, there's no distinction in how you're justified. You are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, we need to pause and understand what does it mean to be justified? We hear this term a lot, but I wonder if we actually sit down in it and meditate on it. Just like we don't think much of our baptism very often, right? We don't improve upon our baptism. I worry that we don't think enough about our justification. So justification is not, here's what it's not. It's not pardon. Did you hear what I just said? Because if it was only pardon, then then that actually is a half measure in terms of salvation. No, justification is not that God says, look, I know you messed up, don't worry about it, go in peace. No, what God says is, I know, I know the depths of your sin greater than you do. And I choose to love you despite that sin. And I love you so much that I am going to transform you into the image of Christ. I am going to make you righteous. I'm going to declare you just, meaning just as if you had never sinned. 
That's as if, I've heard it said, this is not mine, but it's as if the judge turns and says, not only are you not guilty, but you are now my son. Now come and eat of the best of my table. So it is important that we remember this. Parents, you must teach your children what it means to be justified. Uh, our youth group, you got it. You, we got to teach the students what justification means. It cannot be some sort of erudite theological term that is abstract. It has wonderful meaning incarnationally. It means that we are totally free from shame and guilt. Now, it's a process by which we get there. It means that we can trust the Lord our God because he loves us, but it's gonna be a process to get there. This is where sanctification comes in. Sanctification is your lifetime, my lifetime journey to understand what it means to be justified. My mentor, Tom Anderson, used to say, you spend your life discovering who you already are in Jesus. Now that messes with us because of the time categories, right? But it's wonderful to know, and this is why we've been reading Romans 5. That's the wonderful declaration of Romans 5, 1 through 5. You are in Christ able to stand at peace with God in his grace. Amen? What a gift to us that that is, that is true of us, that we are justified, not just pardoned, but made new to be able to display God's righteousness. And he says, you're justified by whose grace? God's grace alone. Now, what is grace? We throw that term around a lot, but I wonder if we ever pause and really think about it. Well, grace is the gift of something beyond what you could comprehend or earn, and you don't deserve it. It is given purely to you by virtue of the love of the giver. Parents, can we show this to our children sometimes? What a gift it would be for us to teach our children about, hey, husbands and wives. Can we, can we show this to each other? Friends, fellow church members, is this something that we could help each other to grow in by displaying it to one another? What would it look like to be a church that's accused of being a, a church of grace. Now, to display the full righteousness of Christ, for those of you who are worried that I just let go the, the, the line of justice, oh no. No, grace is meaningless without justice, right? There's a sense in which grace just becomes soft and ex expected. We would just become entitled without the bank of the river of God's justice that he does take sin seriously. And we too must take sin seriously, right? Because we know the eternal consequences for our friends and neighbors if they don't come to be justified by God's grace through faith in Christ. And this grace is given to us as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now, this is important language. This is the language of a freed slave. The word redemption and the word propitiation are economic terms from their day. To be redeemed is to be delivered from slavery and made into a free man or woman. To be given all the rights of a citizen, not just, not set free 
and then cut loose without any land or any opportunity or any rights. No, this is to be freed from total slavery to full, the full beneficences of citizenship. This is one of the reasons why you hear the citizenship language throughout scripture, right? This is one of the reasons why we see in Ephesians 1 that he says you now have access to all of the heavenly blessings, all of the treasures of heaven are available to you. You have not just, this is why justification is not just pardon. This is you being granted the fullness of the status of a son or daughter of the God most high. And propitiation is payment. Now you may say, who's being paid here? Well, these things are metaphors not necessarily intended to run the full gamut. There was a heresy that has gone around that it was the devil who had to be paid. Well, God owes the devil nothing but judgment. And so this idea of propitiation means that it's justice that is being satisfied. This is why the cross is both God's love and his justice in full measure. He's not turning a blind eye to sin. No, he is satisfying his justice in and through the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. It is Christ who has laid down his life for us so that we could be not just free, but fully vested citizens, sons and daughters, access to it all. And this is received by faith. This alone is received in surrender. It is received passively as gift from the giver. Not to be earned, not to be demanded, because it is not of the law, but it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. And he goes on, Paul says, this was to show God's righteousness. Again, he's saying this is God's righteousness displayed and it was displayed in, in the past. You could, you could insert the Old Testament here before Christ because he had passed over the former sins. So what he's saying is God's righteousness has been on display from the foundation of the world. For those of you who are asking, hey, how are people in the Old Testament saved? Well, we're actually gonna get to that in Romans chapter four. But here it's being declared that there was even, even in God's providence, his redemptive will, that he was forgiving of sins, even of those before Christ came in his incarnation in full. It was shadowy, but it was effective. And he goes on. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he's saying here that he has both justly judged your sin, past, present, and future, and he has uh, justified you as the justifier. So though we were separated from him, though our offense was against him and him alone being God, he is the one who stepped in and made a way so that we would not be separated from him eternally so that we could know the great gift of being sons and daughters of the God Most High, so that our fallenness from head to foot and everything in between would not have the final say, that we could actually display to one another those wonderful characteristics that we read in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, to display the fruit of the Spirit to each other. What would that look like? Again, I want to appeal to you. None of that comes natural. It must be cultivated. You are being formed by everything you're engaging in. 
the important thing would be to do to ask the question, which way am I being formed? You're either being deformed away from the righteousness of God or you're being formed into the righteousness of God. For those of you who worry that you can't watch The Office or other things now, but like you can only watch G-rated, whatever the angel video Christian station is, I didn't just say that. But if you're going to watch things like The Office and, and, uh, and Ted Lasso and any of these other things, you must do so aware, awake, recognizing which way you are being formed. There is common grace. God does use all kinds of things that don't have an ichthus fish on them. God does use uh, all sorts of things to speak to us, his people, but don't forget, the clearest declaration of his love and his righteousness is in Christ alone, by grace alone. And so we need to make sure that that is who we are and who we're being formed into. We need to participate in that because you've been filled with the Spirit. These are not abstractions. These are incarnated realities. Listen to what Tim Keller says about this passage. He says, the wonder of the cross is that in the very same stroke, it satisfies both the love of God and the justice of God. At the very same time, it shows us that God is both the judge who cares enough about his world to set standards and hold us accountable to them and the justifier who has done everything necessary to forgive and restore us. He is a father worth having and he is a father we can have. The cross is where gloriously and liberatingly we see that he is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How has God specifically displayed his righteousness through your justification by his grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Too often we don't think about this. Our Tuesday morning group went around talking about the providence of God and shared how the Lord had been at work in our lives. Right? And there's kind of two types of stories. There's the one where you have this radical kind of experience, a road to Damascus type thing, or some special moment in time. And everybody seems to think, no, that's the one you want. That's the legitimate one, right? Not according to scripture. No, for God's righteousness to be passed from generation to generation is actually a more beautiful ongoing display of his righteousness than to have to come in and pierce the darkness. But praise be to God, he is willing to pierce the darkness. And then there's the other story, like my wife, Susan, who always knew Jesus, loved her, and was surrounded by it. And praise be to God that her parents were faithful to keep the gospel in front of her, that the gospel has permeated her brothers and sisters, that it hopefully will permeate our children and grandchildren. What a wonderful thing that is. It is good for us to recount the goodness of the Lord and how he specifically is displaying these things in and through us. Again, I want to appeal to you, use Exodus 34, 6, and 7 as a means of, of, of declaring the goodness of God. How have you experienced each one of those characteristics throughout your life? How might you still be? Because remember, justification is not, all right, that's done, and now we move on to sanctification. Now, sanctification is continuing to unpack the glorious, eternal beauty of your justification and eventual glorification. What a gift that on this day where we hear these words, we get to come to these tables. That we would get to be nourished in our faith because of God's goodness. That we would have the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. To be reminded of who and whose we are because of what Christ has done. 
Remember his uh, statement from the night on which he had that last meal with them before his crucifixion. And he was trying to get them to understand using, again, this is theology. This is, this is the word made tangible to us, the word made visible. And so he took bread because he knew they were gonna have bread often and said, hey, you need to do this in remembrance of me and it's, it's, it's really for you. This is my body and it is given for you. He was letting them know that, that shame and guilt would no longer be their master. And as the meal went on, he took the cup and he raised it up. He said, this, this is my blood spilled for the forgiveness of your sins. It is the cup of the new covenant. And he was saying to them, you now can display the righteousness of God in how you live and how you love. You're to love God in this way. You're to love your neighbors in this way because it is how you have been loved. So for those of you who know Jesus, you are invited by the host, which is Christ, to this table. For those of you who know forgiveness is the, the, the demarcator uh, between Christianity and all other religions, you are invited hospitably in Christ to this table. If you don't know Christ as Savior, this is not the table for you. If you don't believe that others deserve forgiveness, this table is not for you. But if you recognize that that is a struggle, that that is an ongoing reality that you need help in, that you would receive the gift of God's grace to nourish your faith, and please come. Now, give you a couple of instructions. If all you want is the, the communion MRE, which is the self-contained styrofoam disc and juice, one hand. If you would like the other bread as well, give me two hands, uh, and Jonathan as well, and we'll give you that. Uh, and if you would, when you receive keep it, and when you return to your seat, remain standing. We've had some confusion in this regard, kind of the up-down. So if you would remain standing, and then we'll all take together as family and sing together the doxology before the last song. And so as you receive and have some time, meditate on your justification. Meditate on how good God is to grant you his glorious righteousness to be displayed for the life of the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For this table, thank you more importantly for Jesus as sacrifice. Thank you for your love that has spanned both past, present, and into the future. Thank you for your faithfulness, your mercifulness, your graciousness to us who are completely undeserving. And yet, you choose to love us. You choose to bestow your righteousness upon us and justify us. And then allow us to enjoy that over the whole of our lives and into eternity. God, may we this morning... Taste and see that you are good and be nourished in our justification with these elements. In Christ's name, amen.